Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ghost Spider Groupies, the podcast dedicated to Gwen Stacy of Earth-65, also known as Spider-Gwen and Ghost Spider, where we review her comics, discuss news, and give our opinions about all things Gwen 65. I'm Abigail. And I'm Pax. This week, we uh, do have a little bit of information for our week Gwen update. It's possible that Into the Spider-Verse 2 is going to be called Across the Spider-Verse, so that might be the name of the sequel there, which would be very, very cool. We're looking forward to that. It's currently our uh, latest possible point that we expect to see when Stacy return to an ongoing comic from Marvel. But until that day comes, we are reading through Gwen's side stories, events, crossovers, and stuff, which we haven't done already, where she's an active participant. Uh, last week, we finished off our sort of big read of the main Spider-Gwen comics in King and Black, Gwen versus Carnage. That's the last canonical appearance of Gwen 65 to date. Um, and now what we're doing uh, is we are starting the main Spider-Verse event, where she first sort of started appearing. So this is happening after Edge of Spider-Verse number two, which was her debut issue. We read that for our very first episode on this podcast, and uh, now we're looking at the uh, event which spiraled off from that sort of cliffhanger ending that that had with Spider UK, uh, where he recruits her. We're looking uh, primarily at Amazing Spider-Man by Dan Slott and Olivia um, Quapel. Quapel? I think it's Quapel. Yeah, and Giuseppe Camoncoli. So that's from the Amazing Spider-Man 2014 series. So this is pre-Secret Wars, but you know after Spidey stopped being Otto Octavius. We're also looking at other tie-in stuff. Specifically today, we're looking at an issue of Spider-Woman, which is Spider-Woman number one, also the 2014 series. And we're looking at the B-plot from the Spider-Verse team-up number two uh and it sounds complicated so we're gonna we're gonna put it in in the description so to sum up yeah that's uh amazing spider-man number nine number 10 number 11 from the 2014 series spider-woman number one from the 2014 series and spider-verse team up number two the b-plot from that not the first half the first half some of the stuff the b-plot and the reason we're looking at all of that is because that's the stuff that gwen is a uh, significant player in or it's the main events um and we're going to read through that for this podcast so please do as a listener go and read that yourself for the best possible experience but what we are going to do is have a synopsis as well which we'll get to in a moment so a context to spider-verse there's a lot going on here yeah especially if you've um if any of you listeners have been reading edge of spider-verse the uh, mini tie-in before the main event then you'll know that spiders across the multiverse during Edge have either been recruited by the spider army, like Gwen here, or they've been slaughtered by Morlin, unfortunately. Yeah, it's a, it's a rough time of it. And, like, yeah, it's a pretty dire situation. They, they really took an axe to a lot of different spider characters. They introduced a lot that they killed off, and they also brought back some older ones that they hadn't used in a while. And then, like, killed some of them off, like, Earth 2 Peter Parker gets quite tragically killed in front of his kids, Mayday Parker and Benji, which is was pretty rough. Um, and yeah, there, I think there were a couple of other instances of this, but uh, throughout this whole event, they're killing off spider people. Spider-Verse is, is probably the most casualty-heavy um, spider event we've seen, and there's a sort of very high-stakes feel to a lot of this. But yeah, this was, uh, actually, I was I initially got into comics during this era. I remember reading issues of Dan Slott's Amazing Spider-Man run back when it was still coming out, and sort of the warm-up to this and stuff, and the sort of the, the, the build-up to it was quite significant, really. It was the first big event after Pete came back. Also, interestingly, Spider-Verse also fills in the gap where Otto has been during the events of Superior Spider-Man number 19, because if y'all had read that, 
you remember that like Otto just disappears and then at the end of the issue he inexplicably comes back without any memory of what happened yeah so uh yeah there's a bit of, a bit of time displacement going on here yeah they, they did it in a way where it meant that we had superior spidey and 616 spidey in continuity both existing and clashing and whatever at the same time so um that's fun and we're going to get into that a bit um yeah i'm looking forward to it it's a good it's a good event i mean there's, there's some stuff we'll get into but but it's a good event i like it yeah this is one of dan slot's best stuff yeah okay so we're gonna you know start our little synopsis yeah yeah let's get into it all right so the first thing we're gonna be reading in chronological order is spider-verse team up the b story so we begin on earth 21205 gwen 65 pursues the hobgoblin a peter parker in this reality through the sewers demanding he come with her while they're both pursued by hounds he throws out pumpkin bombs trying to throw her off, but she maintains her pursuit and confronts him. Gwen reveals her identity and this throws him into an existential crisis. He considered himself responsible for Gwen's death and took up killing Green Goblin and his enemies, bringing an end to the Spider-Man mantle and taking on the Hobgoblin title. Gwen offers him a way off this path and to the possibility of redemption in the multiverse to apply their shared guilt productively. Before Peter can accept Gwen's offer, Verna and her hounds burst through knocking Gwen back. Pete vows to be better and throws himself at the attackers to buy Gwen time. He blows up the hounds with pumpkin bombs before Verna grabs him. She mocks him before realizing his plan, one last pumpkin bomb in his hand ready to detonate. The blast kills Pete and stuns Verna. Last minute Hail Mary buys Gwen enough time to regain consciousness and hold Peter as he dies. She vows to kill Verna before portaling out. And then we get to the main event. So Amazing Spider-Man number nine. We begin with Peter Parker has a sudden early morning start woken by Jane Jonah Jameson to get photographs of a new supervillain tearing up a public park. He arrives as Spider-Man and confronts the vampiric villain Moreland. He quickly pins Peter to the ground, kills him and absorbs his life energy. The panel cuts away to reveal that this is an alternate reality that Moreland traveled to, placed on the moon, Earth-449, home of the Spider-Moon Man. Moreland and his family, the Inheritors, are based on Earth-001, Loomworld, where the mechanical, organic, hybrid Master Weaver maintains the web of the multiverse, periodically opening portals for the vampires to travel to new Earths. There they can harvest more quote-unquote spider totems such as the now deceased spider moon man for whom they hunger and need to survive Moreland's sister verna calls for a hunt and fetches her hounds brainwashed versions of silver sable fireheart and craven she heads out to a quote a world with young spiders while Moreland's brother deimos teases his sibling about the difficulties of the spider-man of earth 616 Curious as he is unfamiliar with the reality and eager to frustrate Moreland's plans saving the world for later, he heads out for 616. There, Peter Parker is abruptly woken by Cindy Moon Silk. Their shared presence in the city is creating a lot of tension, so Sydney proposes that Peter leave and go somewhere else as she is still learning the ropes of superhero life after a long time in a bunker. They go out for a swing and start tackling a large organized robbery in progress. In a series of surprise appearances, they are soon joined by Jessica Drew, Spider-Woman, Anya Corazon, Spider-Girl, Miguel O'Hara, Spider-Man 2099, Billy Braddock, Spider-UK of Earth-833, Mayday Parker, Spider-Girl of Earth-982, 
And finally, Peter Porker, the Spider-Ham of Earth-25. Peter is taken completely off guard by this, so they explain the situation. The team detected Deimos' venture across the Great Web to Earth-616 and sought to save Peter from his clutches by bringing him to a safer point in the multiverse. They informed Peter of Morland's family and their lethal interdimensional mission. Deimos arrives on Earth-616 and finds Kane Parker, the Scarlet Spider. He defeats the team Kane belongs to, the New Warriors, and identifies the angstier spider as the other, noting his abilities with spikes coming out of his body. Before he can deal any further critical damage, however, another spider team bursts through and interrupts the feeding process. Old Man Spider of Earth-4, Bruce Banner, Spider-Man Not Hulk of Earth-70105, Gwen Stacy, whoop whoop, Spider-Woman of Earth-65, and Bane Riley, Spider-Man of Earth-94, retrieve the wounded Scarlet Spider and head into a portal. In the process, though, Deimos brutally dispatches Bruce. The team arrives at the Spider Refuge, also called the Safe Zone, where Cosmic Spider-Man of Earth-13, empowered by Captain Universe, safeguards the spiders from any inheritor incursions. Gwen Stacy's appearance at the event garners surprised reactions from her spider counterparts. The spiders believe that Peter 616 is the greatest of them all, much to his shock. Meanwhile, on Earth 1610, this reality's spider powered Miles Morales and Jessica Drew mourn the death of Rio Morales at her gravesite. Suddenly, though, the moment is broken when Verna and her hounds burst through a portal right above them, smashing into the grave. Amazing Spider Man number 10. Before they can be killed, Otto Octavius, a time-displaced superior Spider-Man of Earth-616, leads a team of assassin Spider-Man of Earth-8351 and Spider-Punk of Earth-138 to the rescue. The trio kill the hounds, pinning the spiders of 1610 to the ground. They provide a portal out for Miles and Jessica, who suit up and join them. Back at the safe zone, Peter 616 contests the idea that he is any kind of chosen one from among the spider totems. However, he is entirely unique in the fact that he has fought an inheritor in the past, Morlan, and won. They detect a group led by Superior Spidey and dispatch teams to go bring them in. Gwen 65 was supposed to be on one of the teams, but Peter 616 insists that she shouldn't. Silk, despite not being picked for a team, recklessly jumps through one of the teams. Peter and the Earth-13 spiders drop in on the group of spiders dubbed by Otto as the Superior Spider Army, formed in the 2099 future that Miguel hails from. Otto invented a device that cloaks the spider totem scent from the inheritors. However, the large influx of new spiders into this reality negated the effect of the cloaking device. Deimos drops through a portal soon after they realize this. Superior Spidey directs his forces to attack. Long-range fighters fire from a distance before a close-range wave storms in a follow-up attack. They soon start taking casualties, and so the Earth-13 spiders throw themselves into the fray. With Kane as their heavy hitter and a lethal blow from Otto's 2099 augmented tech, they kill Deimos. However, they note that he didn't die properly, and their worst fears are soon confirmed when a new portal opens up, and he returns with more inheritors in a new body. He kills Old Man Spider with the surprise entrance. As Old Man Spider dies, he reveals his true nature as the Ezekiel Sims of another reality where he continued the legacy of Spider-Man after his Peter's death. He emphasizes that Silk, the Bride, Kane, the Other, and the Scion are all that matter to their winning against the fight against the Inheritors. 
Jessica Drew and Spider-Man Noir are dispatched to track Silk, who goes off on her own thinking she can draw the inheritor's attention on Loomworld. The remaining spiders, not dead, or split off from the group, travel back to the safe zone. There, the superior Spider-Man declares that from this point on, he is in charge. Amazing Spider-Man number 11. Peter counters Otto's power play, insisting that he is in charge. Otto begins to rant about his superiority and leadership skills, mocking Peter, not realizing that he is from a future point after Otto loses control of the body. Pete loses his temper and punches Otto in the face, and so the two fight. The rest of the spider totems watch from the sidelines, waiting to see how the duel plays out. Otto has Peter dead to rights at one moment, but hesitates, not wanting to hurt his purportedly past self. Pete takes advantage of the moment, and Roundhouse kicks Otto into unconsciousness. Standing over his knocked-out nemesis, Peter reaffirms his position as leader of the group. Karn, the exiled inheritor, continues his forever voyage, dispatched from reality to reality, killing totem after totem, hoping to gain his father's trust. Solus watches from afar disapprovingly and arranges for the Master Weaver to keep sending him to more challenging worlds. Morlin arrives to discuss the situation with the gathering forces of spider totems across the multiverse and the prophecy which threatens their interdimensional dominance. Solus, tiring of the impunity of the refuge, gathers his family for an assault that he will personally lead. Recognizing the weakness of their position in a park on Earth-13, Peter-616 decides to move from the group further towards urban landscapes they can best defend against any incursions from. The rest of the totems, including a humbled Otto, head to more defensible surroundings. They receive reports from their team still out in the field that are still struggling. Desiring more information on the inheritors, Peter dispatches Gwen and Anya to assist Jessica 616 on Loomworld. Peter apologizes for being overprotective before and the two vow to watch over each other to keep each other safe, unlike in their own realities. After sending out others for a new recruitment drive, Peter leaves with them too, putting Spider UK in charge. At this point, we're taking a little break from the main story of Amazing Spider-Man number 11 to see what Jess and company have been doing in Spider-Woman number one, because that's where the narrative fits in. Yeah. So anyway, Spider-Woman number one, Jessica Drew, Cindy Moon, and Spider-Man Noir ride lizard donkeys through Loom World on the run from the Inheritors. Silk derisively comments about Jessica's stick-in-the-mud attitude. Jessica fetches some disguises. Meanwhile, Cindy and Noir stick up for an elder being mugged. Jessica notices the commotion and hijacks a motorbike to go assist. Dispatching the muggers, they are soon confronted by Inheritor's who portal into Silk's position. Noir dives in front of Cindy and takes a huge blow to the back, severely injured. Before the Inheritors can go in for the kill, Jessica lets loose her bike, crashing it into them and jumping off before the explosion. She helps Cindy and Noir to safety. They take Noir back to his home reality before the Inheritors can recover. There, his reality's black hat cares for him. Jessica and Cindy exchange some harsh words over having to leave Noir behind before having to leave, seeing Anya, Gwen, and Peter portal into the building. There, they join up with Jessica and Cindy. Pete pulls Jess out and leaves Anya and Gwen with Cindy to look after her. Silk portals out without either of her new babysitters, not seeing it first. In a new reality, a wintry abandoned New York, Cindy finds herself pursued by a monster living there and the inheritors Bora and Bricks not far off from her trail. So back in sort of the main Amazing Spider-Man number 11 issue, back on her 13 even, Solus and the inheritors arrive. 
two of the inheritors quickly kill a couple of the totems, but Cosmic Spidey scorches them to dust before they can get any further. He squares off against Solus, who launches at Cosmic, crashing them both into the ground. There, Cosmic attempts to retaliate with a blast of Enigma Force, but Solus's sheer capacity allowed him to absorb the pure life force energy thing of Captain Universe. The Cosmic Spider-Man is dead. Orland then sets upon Mayday Parker and snatches her baby brother Benji, declaring it to be the Scion. Okay, that's uh, that's part one of the Spider-Verse stuff, which features Gwen Stacy, 65. She got a considerable amount of panel time during this part one. Yeah, and I, I wonder how much of that was something they always planned on doing, and how much of it was stuff that like they had to sort of like add in after reacting to how popular she'd become after Edge of Spider Verse number two. Um, like how much of it was reactive in the writing process there? I think according to uh, Nick Loesch, um, one of the editors at the Spider Office, like she got so popular to the point where she was picked up for the mini at first. I think that's why they wanted to uh, like push her in Spider Verse. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No. She. She. She gets a. Yeah, she gets a bigger role in some of the, the side stuff here. I thought one of the, the interesting things uh, was how Dan Slott definitely did always want to have a alternate Gwen Stacy as part of his Spider-Verse roster, but um, certainly not one that looks like the Gwen that we know anyway. They had a, a sort of different design in mind there that we've mentioned in the past. Oh, yeah. Um how the original concept for Ghost Spider or Spider Gwen even was supposed to be a variation of her death coat and wearing a half mask with a red and blue color scheme. Yes, yeah. Um and they did they didn't do any concept work for that. I think there's some fan art of it. Um but but yeah it's um it's a little it's a little bit grim, um I think, using the the death uh, the death outfit as her superhero outfit. Um I'm I'm glad they went in the direction they did with it. But I think that would have been a funny way to make Peter squirm, you know, because Gwen is essentially, you know, another version of his dead ex-girlfriend who has the same face and she just happens to be wearing what she was wearing when she died. Yeah, I think I think maybe the wearing the stuff that, you know, wearing her death outfit was it would maybe be like... I think maybe it'd take the edge off it because this is like reveal moment that happens. Like because Gwen isn't wearing that, she's able to have all of these moments where she unmasks. Even Kane was baffled by Gwen's existence because he thought that it was just the work of the jackal. Because you know, because he's all wrapped up in all of this clone stuff. Yeah, I have to imagine like Dan Slot because uh, he, he gives he gives uh, Gwen and Kane a, a couple of interactions, uh, whether or not he sort of had in mind their future ally ship in clone conspiracy in mind but what they do have in common is that they're both angsty oh they're both super angsty yeah they're angst yeah like that i think that makes them work as a as a sort of team up place down the line quite well but yeah we got a lot of uh shocked reactions to spider gwen's existence from different characters in in this because even pete was like a when Gwen was about to be dispatched, he's like, "No, she stays behind." Yeah, I thought it was a bit of a, a bit of a jerk move on his part because you know, obviously, they want to make a point about how he's been impacted by his own Gwen's death, but also, yeah, like just yeah, not not not. not I didn't seem very nice, and so they have to have this sort of moment later on where he apologizes to her, and it seems quite sweet actually. 
where they both vow to look after each other, which is really nice. And I'm glad they have that moment. It's a really, it's a really nice characterization. It's probably one of the most shared panels I've seen of Gwen Stacy actually is the one where she's saying to Pete, we should look over each other because we like failed our realities versions of each other, um, which I, I think is really nice. Um, I think it's a, it's a nice sort of way to set those two up going forward, Gwen 65 and Pete 616. But we have to emphasize that this is not a romantic ship because Pete is like 10 years older than Gwen. Absolutely. Like, um, I, I don't know if like this, there's a couple of moments in this where, where like Gwen says stuff, which I'm, I'm wincing a bit at, like, because it, it feels maybe a little bit too, like, Dan Slott is writing her older than she is. Like, there's, there's one moment where she calls Kane handsome. Is, is that right? Oh, yeah, when she's uh, helping him up. Yeah, which which doesn't seem appropriate, considering the age difference there. But if you want to get technical about it, when Kane was born, even though he was, like, made as a fully grown adult, if you want to get all chronological and technical about it. I mean, I mean he has the mind of, like, like a late 20s, right? Yeah, a mind of a twenty-eight-year-old. Yeah, he has he has the mind. Of, yeah, right. Now that's the I think that's the kicker there. So and and, and also looks like one crucially. So um, like to have, yeah. That that I don't know if that was a great moment there. And actually, I'm not gonna lie. There's a bunch of moments in this where I think maybe Dan Slott's writing of female characters is a bit a little little, little bit undercooked, maybe. Like, I mean, like, not to badmouth Dan Slott, but, like, I just don't really, well, probably in big moments like these, excluding his clone conspiracy part, because he really did write Gwen and Kane platonically well. Mm, absolutely. But, no. Yeah, no, that wasn't that wasn't a good moment, the handsome sort of moment. Uh, yeah, it was bad. It's interesting because uh, we have, uh, like, the Spider-Verse team-up is an anthology title, right? So it's a tie-in series where they bring in different creative teams and different characters. Um, like, you can see, if you look at that one, uh, like, in the part A, you have one with uh, classic Spidey and ultimate Miles Morales and uh, the ultimate cartoon Spider-Man. And that's all very, very cool. So they do different, like, stories in each of them. Um, but what they did is they actually brought Jerry Conway in to write a... Um, a Gwen Stacy story, a Spider Gwen Stacy story, even. Yeah, like how are your feelings about that when you first discovered it? Well, I was, I was a little, little bit, a uh, little bit lost my mind a little bit. Like this, this, this man, all those years ago, uh, dropped Gwen Stacy. Jerry Conway, it literally went up onto the bridge and dropped Gwen Stacy off it. Right, it, it, it was him, and uh, he did this thing, and then he gets to come back decades and decades and decades later to write a Spider-Gwen story. He gets to rehash all of that all over again. And look, I'm, I'm not going to lie, not a big fan of fridging, really not a big fan of killing off the female love interests. Like, did you know that, interestingly, the death of Gwen Stacy, Conway did that with Stanley being on vacation when he did that, so Lee was unaware that Jerry Conway did that? Yeah, there was, there was a lot of... Um, uh, from what I understand, there's a lot of creative tension in the background to it, and I've heard stuff where like Stanley was in favor or wasn't in favor of it at different points. But anyway, there was enough sort of wrangling in the background that they did end up doing the initial clone saga with the initial Gwen Stacy who got cloned after that. So yeah, it, it was contentious even back then. And obviously, we spoke to Sean and McGuire. We we got to we got to hear somebody who who read that issue, that back issue, a good sort of, well, it was a good, it was a good 10 years after it came up, but sort of experienced it as a reader would do. And it was obviously, it's, it's a bit of pretty heartbreaking and it's not a nice way to treat the character, I don't think. I don't think it's a good thing that they killed Gwen Stacy off like that. I mean, ultimately in the long run, 
glad it's led to this position where we have spider gwen but i do not think they should be killing off characters for shock value in the way that they did for the death of loves gwen stacy in fact there's a lot of shock value death all around in this event already uh, but that particularly there's a sort of power dynamic to the way that works and the way that they show different characters grief and how it impacts people instead of you know like ultimately that they did just sort of fridge a love interest at the end of the day which is not great that said jerry conway um i I mean his recent stuff that i've read it's decent like i i really enjoyed the carnage ongoing that he did i thought you know overall this little mini story he does here that's fun i like this pop goblin peter parker he creates um yeah like he's not a bad writer i don't think i just think it's it's specifically this trope and maybe a bit of a blind spot there. But I also did enjoy Conway's run on the first nine issues of Renew Your Vows Volume 2 that he did with Stegman. Yeah, like, yeah that was great writing. Yeah, I haven't read that. But yeah, like I think um yeah, I think I think Conway's got, you know, he's not um he's not declined at all as a writer. I, th- I think because he started writing at such a young age, perhaps he Jerry Conway of of the 2020s and 2010s is, is perhaps a sharper writer than the one that wrote Death of Gwen Stacy or those years ago. So uh, yeah, I think it's really interesting. But yeah, like I, I like that as, as a little story for Gwen. I think it's really fun. And yeah, like it's a good, it's a good issue. Yeah. I also really liked how uh, Gwen here you know, she uses, you know, her shared guilt complex of the hobgoblin you know, to convince her to come to her side. Yeah, I thought uh, I thought it was interesting because, yeah, she's essentially able to bring all of these very shocked Peter Parkers on side whenever she meets them uh, by being like, well, you know, I couldn't save my Peter Parker. Um, and and yeah, like there's that shared guilt and trauma. And it does seem like it's a nice way to try and reckon with that a little bit like you do feel that after some of the stuff that we've had here in spider-verse that gwen is able to emotionally perhaps deal with with pete's death a little bit better which is nice but then you know we get into this whole like hullabaloo because you know when gwen was thrown off the bridge and when pete caught her you know her death was an accident Mm -hmm. but when gwen fought the lizard she wasn't pulling her punches and Pete died from the strain of Gwen's punches and also being the lizard overall. Yeah, I, th- I think with Gwen's death, right, in the Spider-Man comics, it is, it is a pretty cut and dry fridging. Like, there's not a lot that, like, Pete personally had in terms of agency. Like, there's there's obviously, like, this element of he, he should have told her about his secret identity. Um, like, it's a pretty moral failing. Is it something he never did in the original comics? Gwen Stacy never finds out. Peter Parker is Spider-Man. They have retconned stuff in since then. Like in Clone Conspiracy, there is a retcon where she finds out right before she dies. Uh, but but actually, like in the original, like I think it's stuff like that. I would argue that the event that is most like Death of Peter Parker in the Gwen 65 comics uh, that is reflected in, in the Peter Parker Spider-Man comics is Uncle Ben's death because they're both great responsibility moments. They're both moments where they're acting selfishly, sort of, and they both don't apply their powers properly, so it results in a, in a death. And I think that is a template for how this usually goes, is sort of more closely reflected there. Gwen doesn't really have a sort of cut and dry fridging in her comics, because it's kind of hard, because she's a, a female main character, they don't really happen for those ones. So, But yeah, it's uh, one of those things, I think. But I'm just thinking, like, if... Pete had caught Gwen differently, not just like snagging her by the leg. Like, let's say, for example, if she was webbed by the back, do you think that would have been a totally different outcome? 
Yeah, maybe. I mean, it, I mean, it was, pre- it was pretty rough to try and pull off at distance, and uh, I'm sure if uh, writers have done rehashes of the bridge fall, right, where like a female love interest is caught differently to what we saw Pete catch Gwen initially there. But yeah, I mean, either way, she was either going to hit the water and die, or she was going to get caught before she hit the water. And the chances are that the you know breaking the fall like that would kill her anyway. Which yeah, I mean, it kind of sucks. Green Goblin killed Gwen Stacy. I I don't think it's right to be seeing Peter Parker killed Gwen Stacy. Green Goblin chucked her off a bridge. Well, rather, I should say Jerry Conway killed Gwen <laughs> Stacy. That should that's more accurate. Jerry Conway specifically uh, literally went up to the bridge and dropped Gwen Stacy off it. Um, it was Jerry Conway himself. Um, but yeah, that's just that's my. That's my thoughts on that. I think when people get, they get very hung up on like, did Pete kill it? Like if Pete did, if it was his actions that killed Gwen, they were not deliberate actions that he took. Whereas the action to actually drop Gwen off the bridge is obviously much more deliberate, had a lot more agency. And I think was the key sort of reason that she died in that way. I think one of the few times where you could explicitly say that the goblin killed Gwen was, uh, there's this one scene in symbiote Spider-Man alien reality where, because, you know, the whole mini is about Spider-Man is trapped in this weird world where everything's different. Right. He managed to uh, save Gwen from falling off the bridge, but then she was immediately killed by a sparkle blast from the goblin, like, to the head. I hate that. I hate that. And that reality's goblin was MJ. Okay, that's kind of, actually, that's not, okay. I I might read that just to see MJ, Green Goblin, but, um, yeah, uh... I I don't know how to feel about that. I guess I'd have to read that, honestly. Symbiote, Spider-Man, I, I think I read the first issue of the Alien Reality one, and I trailed off with it. I guess we'll talk a bit more about Greg Land's art later, but yeah, it's it's rough. But yeah, Alien Reality's really weird. Like, Craven's his friend, uh, Black Widow is the Red Cat, Jameson is Deathlock, and MJ's the Goblin. Well, okay, yeah, I uh, might, I might, I might read that just for the fun twists there, like like a like a good alt reality story, as one might be able to tell. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things. And you know, another rough thing for Gwen here is that she fails to save another Peter, but at the same time, Hobgoblin said that he really was saved by her. Yeah, I think um, like she does the work, right? Like she she finds him, she convinces him to be better, um, and convinces him to be a hero, which he does go on to be. Um, it's just that the timeline was very short after that point. He's uh, he's interesting, like this Hobgoblin Pete, and I think there's a couple of there's a couple of Peter Parkers in the Spider Verse event, which are essentially uh, didn't take the death of Gwen Stacy very well and became a supervillain, and he's one of them that Conway sort of put in here and. Yeah, he's yeah he he does you know he has the full you know redemption moment and Gwen did the right thing. It's just that he died very soon after. Um, yeah, but I think the important thing in this B story was that you know that Gwen sees the good in people. Yeah, I think she's definitely more like optimistic about people after this point, and yeah, like. Like it gives her hope for the future, and and the thing is, like I wasn't, uh, but yeah, like I would like to have seen her maybe actually throw a punch at some point. Maybe she doesn't quite get that opportunity here. No, I think like she was too busy being chased by the inheritors or trying to babysit Silk. Yeah, but like even yeah, like specific yeah, it's um, it's one of those things, I guess. 
But yeah. I guess if there's a sequel to Spider-Geddon, just like how Spider-Geddon was a sequel to Spider-Verse, except this time, this is Gwen's story. Yeah, for sure. And also, like, Gwen and Werner kind of have beef. Like, they keep fighting each other. They keep getting paired off for fights and altercations and stuff. Like, they're still fighting each other in, like, Spider-Geddon, aren't they? Like, And Verna finds out that she can't consume Gwen just because her of her symbiote. Yeah, the, uh, the table's turned by then. But yeah... I thought it was quite interesting how this is played here, where um, in order to delay Verna further, Pete sort of detonates the hobgoblin bomb right in between them, which only stuns her, but it kills him. But like, I, there's this sort of mechanism I've noticed in this, where if if the spider is dead, right, they can't they can't absorb their life force, right? So they have to keep them alive, which is really grim when you think about that one feasting scene. That means all of those spiders were alive on that table. They're just really mangled, and uh, yeah, like there's there's a lot of this sort of a thing where the inheritors want to eat these guys, but not in all instances. So it's it's an interesting sort of catch that they have to keep to, where they sort of can't play with their food too much. But yeah, like what Pete does, uh, he not only like delays um, the inheritors long enough for Gwen to get out, but also he denies them a meal. Um, which I, I thought was a nice sort of last final middle finger to the, to the villain's story here. Yeah, since Verna was like, what are you smiling at? Because, you know, it's kind of wholesome how Hobgoblin Pete, like he dies happy knowing that there's a version of Gwen out there who's alive. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a really optimistic tone to that initial story that I really, really enjoy. But yeah, we, we also get, um, we have a lot more story in the Dan Slot sort of chunk of this event which is the sort of the main thrust of everything here is dan slot's amazing spider-man run which um is it's a it's a hit or miss run it has its moments it has its very not moments and i think i think overall spider-verse is a good event there's a lot of cool characters here i do think it's there's maybe some of the writing of some of the characters i feel is maybe a little bit off there's a couple of moments with pete particularly with pete and cindy which just sort of feel yeah, it's skeevy. Oh, it is. Absolutely. And, like, they don't have a huge amount of female characters in this that really sort of feel strong, even though there's, like, a lot in it, technically speaking. Uh, like, a lot of them are just sort of, like, written in a skeevy way or in a very trauma way. Like, Mayday spends the whole time just sort of bogged down on this trauma thing where he really put her through the ringer. Gwen... Uh, obviously has the trauma but like also i think gwen's probably like gets away with it mostly because she wasn't introduced by dan slot i think that's a big part of it but cindy gets the worst of it cindy has uh i think some some awful sort of almost racialized uh stereotypes with regards to this sort of hypersexual approach that is taken to the way that character is written um and they try and play it for laughs or for humor uh, but really it's just it's it's very clearly male fantasy writing yeah, because with the whole primal urges thing, because of being bit from the same spider, yeah, that's that's just really skeevy. Yeah, and there's this one scene where she's walking among all of these spiders from the multiverse, Dan Slot channeling the inner monologue of Cindy Moon, see what she would be thinking at this point in time, and apparently it's her trying to work out which ones she's attracted to and which ones she's not. And I'm like... Like, she's trying to play Tinder with Cosmic Spider-Man, Spider UK and considers Kane. Right. And and I'm reading it and I'm just I'm just cringing. Everything with Cindy Moon in this event, if you're a Cindy Moon fan, it's rough. 
it is a rough read and yeah i hope i know dan slot has definitely reflected on this since he said stuff to which there seems to be a regretful tone to all of this from what i understand and certainly cindy's solo outings uh since have been much improved takes on this character because you know i think there is a, a fun you know like a funny element right to a character being locked up in a bunker for 10 years and then breaking out except that like they just don't explore that in a, in a very nice way they explore it in this very like you say skeevy way and yeah it just kind of kind of sucks and you know since uh you know she's been trapped there for 10 years you know she's way too excitable about everything much to uh jess's annoyance yeah like i like the sort of the excitable like vibe like the sort of like seeing the world as this cool thing to be explored and and these new experiences in a sort of really fresh way where she's not as bogged down in in perhaps the same kinds of trauma that everybody else is um from the sort of spidey universes which i think is really nice i like that aspect to that character and that's something i do think that they explore well in other comics but it's not done well here i don't think no, but at least Robbie Thompson got the opportunity to clean up Silk. Yeah, and we're grateful every day for that. Yeah, um, she's also been labeled as the bride in this, which means that she's one of like four different chosen ones. Like one of three, well, it's going to be one of four in Spider-Geddon, but here it's one of three spider entities in order to kill all of the spiders. Yeah, I mean, just one of those things. And and yeah, they, they do a lot of chosen one stuff with this. And a lot of the time, it doesn't feel like like it's really been like. The, did there need need to be a prophecy here? Did there? There's like I've noticed this. This isn't the only event where like like two or three issues in, they go actually. There's a prophecy that such and such a character that we're familiar with is actually X Y Z title and is gonna save us all. It's uh, yeah, like they, they just go hard on the Jesus metaphor thing, and it's happened. As you know, I know that it happened with King and Black, and it happened with Spider Verse, and it's like. Yeah, uh, it's a strange trope to use. But I think in Pete's case, it's only because he fought, he was the only spider who fought Morlin and won. Yeah, I think that was them trying to reconcile the comic, really, with the fact that they'd taken, like, Dunslot taken Morlin, right, who was introduced as a singular vampire dude who was very obsessed with Spider Man. That was his character. And he's essentially spun out of Morlin, this whole family, this whole other reality whole status quo where they're going around sucking people's life energy um, and he's established all of this just out of the fact that Pete fought a vampire dude a couple of times so they sort of had to find a way to acknowledge that and I think it makes sense that people would be like oh hey this this guy is the only person who successfully beat Morlin I think that that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting way of, of folding that in and it only took Ox prodding to make him step up as the leader of the spider army because he was like do I really want this job? Like, am I really the chosen one? I thought it was a bit strange. Like, they didn't need to have, like, a single autocratic leader who got to that position through winning a physical fight. I don't know if that's a good system of government, especially with this many people. They, they really should have spread out the decision-making process there. The, I think there's a tendency among superhero comics to sort of just put all of the stuff on one person uh, all of the power in that and yeah and it sort of creates weird situations like this like if you and 20 of your mates got together and decided to do a big group project would you point one single person in charge of it is that how you do it because i don't i don't know if i'd do it like that 
No, because you usually put everything to a vote. Like each member of the group has their own duties to do. So, yeah, I mean, you'd you'd try and build a consensus, or you like you say you'd vote, or you you know you know you'd have more than one person deciding on everything. But like the people here are like super keen to be like, yeah, um, whoever wins this fight between Otto Spidey and current Spidey. They get to be the ultimate Spidey of us all. I shouldn't say ultimate. Um, the superior. The superior. Uh, yeah, there's, there's no adjectives left, is there? Um, the most spectacular. No, wait. Um, so yeah, like uh, the the bogged down in like this strange power play thing and obviously it makes sense for Otto Octavius I think to be like the single autocratic leader of everybody but I, I really feel for Pete he should have been much more keen to be like maybe sh- other people should also be making decisions at a sort of like m- more general level so you don't have situations where there's only one person in charge like is that like they could divide the duties because how some teams usually work there's a tactical leader and then there's the field leader yeah, they they didn't really they didn't really have much nuance to it there either. Like they didn't have different roles and stuff. Obviously, they had different. Like they'll send a team out and have somebody in charge, I guess. But but nothing really meaningful outside of that, which gave it a sort of strange strange vibe in a few scenes. But they did end up splitting into teams later, mostly because you know they needed their own things to do. Because you got the Spider Army, which is Pete's faction, the Superior Spider Army, Otto's faction, because. It's Otto. Mm. You got Team Clone and then the Silk Squad. Well, not the fans, as in like the people who have to protect Silk. Yeah, like, this becomes this whole thing, the, the people protecting Silk. But yeah, like I like that they have different teams going off and doing their own thing. I think that's a good way to do an event book with Ty and stuff, is to have like teams splitting off from the main book to go do their own little arc. Um, and the Scarlet Spider stuff I enjoyed and um, Spider Woman stuff's really solid, and and yeah, they've got a nice little system going here, and it's all well communicated. You can clearly see where different comics tie into different points within other ones, which I found very interesting. So yeah, it's been it's been it's been a good sort of time of it on that front. Like even in Spider Geddon, they did the same thing. They split off into their own different teams because they needed something else to do. Yeah. Because once again, you got Peter's faction and then mm. Superior Ox faction, because of course. And then you got Kane's, the Spider Force. Mm. And then you got the Spider Girls. Yeah, actually, even though it's called Spider Geddon, I feel like maybe the scope of it felt like a little bit less than what they did here for Spider Verse. But yeah, like they have all of these different teams, which are fun. Although I will say this like the idea of like Cindy Moon just needing babysitters all of the time just sort of feels kind of wrong. You know, things because she's kind of considered the new kid, although that would be applicable to almost everyone there. But I think it's just because of Ezekiel's prophecy that Moreland's going to come after her. Yeah, I, I think this, this is strange prophecy thing that comes back again. And they take every moment they can to show Cindy Moon as this reckless character who just sort of goes off on her own. And I don't know if that's super accurate. Because even when Jess told her and Noir just to stay low, like the first thing they do, pick a fight, and then she's got to clean it up. Yeah, it's a um, strange dynamic there. At least, you know, we get to see a little bit of Miles in this arc. Yeah, is the Bendis run still going on during this? I believe it is. Yeah, Um. so I think it's uh, I need a bit of context there, because obviously um, in... 
the ultimate Spider-Man comics when Miles was still on the ultimate reality. His mother is killed by like a stray bullet during a fight with Venom. And that, I think it's just still coming off that. But there's this like line about bringing him suits and stuff. So like Jessica Drew on the ultimate Earth is a clone of Peter Parker, but a woman and sort of a spy. And she also known as the Black Widow. Yes, and she's at this point the Black Widow of Earth One Six One Zero. She she stopped calling herself Spider Woman, which I think was a very cool name. And also a reminder that Black Widow is a spider themed mantle. But yeah, like they're a fun pairing, and they sort of are emotional supports for each other in the wake of Peter's death on that Earth. So. Um, yeah, there's a really sort of interesting usage of them. Uh, there's a really sad moment where the grave of Rio Morales is destroyed. So that was a real shame. Because even Miles told Verna that because she did that, this just got personal between the both of them. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of moments that where, where characters are turning to these inheritors and, and vowing to defeat or kill or it's personal and all of that. And you... Yeah, I I think there's a lot of catharsis in seeing them being able to deliver on that later down the road. I think the whole beef thing, because it's Gwen and Miles to have beef with Verna. Uh, Mayday has beef with Deimos. Right, exactly. And it's also because, you know, um, you know, Benji's the only family that Mayday's got left. Well, to her knowledge, anyway. Right, yeah, it's um, it's a rough... Wait, does, does she have a mother? Did the mother make it? Yeah, MJ made it, and May's boyfriend. Right, yeah. So, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's, it was a traumatic one. That Do you know which issue they covered the death of the Earth 2 Peter Parker and stuff? The Earth 982, Peter? I think it was um the issue before the main event, number 8. Right, okay, because it's not, it's not in what we've had here today. But yeah, that was, I remember reading that, and that just felt like a bit much. I think there's a few times where they kill off characters, and it feels maybe a little bit too much in how they're handling them, especially if they've been around a long time. But yeah, like these are canonical appearances. So Earth 982 Peter Parker is still dead whenever they go back there. Like the inheritors did go there and kill him. That is the thing which happened. But he actually was revived at the end of Spider Geddon. Because um, at the end of Spider-Geddon, when they were trying to wonder who the newest host of the other is, it just shows Peter's hand bursting out of the grave. That was a thing which happened? Yeah, if you look at Spider-Geddon number five, it's just one panel when they're talking about who the newest host of the other is. It's just literally one panel of a hand bursting out of a grave taking place on Earth 982. I was going to say, because I'm trying to remember that moment, but yeah, I think the other is really cool, by the way, like as a concept, this giant spider beast that takes over different spider totems, really fun little piece of spider lore that they're using there. Maybe not the original, maybe not the original other story, but the way it's used here, I think is fun. And Kane's sort of slow devil, like devol- slowly devolving into it or evolving into it, I don't know, like with the spikes and the stuff. Yeah. All of that is really, really interesting stuff. And I like that aspect to it. I like how Kane is used here. And um, yeah, no, I, I love the sort of little, little arc they're putting in them on there. Do you want to talk a little bit about Ark? Because he was being like, well, there's no nice way to say it. He's a douche. Yeah, he's really, really mean in this. But I, I guess we expected that. He's an uh, interesting character, I, I think. Because obviously he, does, he doesn't want to not do the right thing like he wants to help people but also but he wants to do thing his way right it's very very conditional on 
protecting his ego in the meantime. And the moment that that comes into threat, suddenly everything is derailed and he has to like fight somebody. Um, and there's a few instances of this up until he is very roundhousely humbled by our Pete, which is very, very satisfying. I do wonder what would have happened if Pete just outright said to him, by the way, um, you are my past, um, and how he would have dealt with that information. I think he was just going to be in disbelief, like, as usual, just because he's always full of himself. Yeah, I thought it was interesting how Pete notes that he essentially just jumped to the conclusion that he, Pete 616, was from the past because he couldn't contemplate a future where he wasn't in control of the body. I thought that was a really interesting added detail there. Um, but yeah, really cool to have Superior Spider-Man in this. I find it interesting how they have two different spider factions. Um, I love that design as well. Black and red, I think. I prefer to blue and red and, and the arms and everything. Yeah, I just I like seeing that on page. It's a very aesthetically pleasing design, and I'm glad they've got it in here. I haven't read it, but from what I understand, like the Superior Spider-Man comics that uh, Slot did weren't bad. They were like decent comics. They were really, really good. Yeah, to say nothing of like how long it should have been or anything to that nature. It was a decent like, comic run. Because I actually have the full Superior run on both trades. Like I read them last year during lockdown. So yeah, it's pretty good. Fun. That's really cool. Yeah, so... um. Yeah, I think there's definitely some weaknesses to Dan Slott's writing, but like the way he does uh, Otto, I really like. But yeah, there's um, he put quite a few spiders into this, I suppose. Oh, but what did you think of Otto calling Spider UK the British idiot? Um, yeah, I was surprised that Otto had such a hang-up about British people. Um, as uh, I mean, I wasn't planning on making friends with Dr. Octopus, but I am a little bit sad that it does seem like it's off the table after reading these comics. He does, he does not like the fact that Spider-UK is British. So... Um, yeah, it's it's quite funny actually. Some of the some of the stuff he says, and, and I've also found it funny how they write Spider UK where they put like different British isms into his dialogue, where he's like you having a laugh, and other moments and stuff where I thought were quite were quite amusing, where where they where they sort of they tried to make him just sort of evidently British just through dialogue alone. But yeah, I I yeah, was, that was an interesting Spider character. I like I like how they they build on Billy Braddock. Because obviously he does have sort of a, you know, he, he wants to sort of take charge and have a bit of a leadership streak in this, but they sort of build on that and give him a sort of fuller and richer arc over in the Web Warriors comics, which is usually what I think of when I when I think of Billy Braddock. The Web Warriors, Billy Braddock is, is the one closest to my heart. Here he's just sort of used for a lot of exposition, I think. Because isn't it heavily implied that he's the one who recruited Gwen into the army? Yeah, he has to have been. With that final panel in Edge of Spider-Verse number two, he has to have been the one who did the, the pitch for Gwen. In fact, I'd be interested to see that if they ever brought this character back or if they ever wanted to reflect on people that Gwen has lost, they could do that initial talking scene. There's a, there's a couple of scenes like that where they could they could flash back to him and, and actually give us those moments on panel that I think would be quite interesting. Because when we read Spider-Gwen Ghost Spider number four, you could tell that even though they didn't have they didn't know each other that well um you know she was very you know mournful of billy yeah i think i think what shonen had done was was also red web warriors alongside the latour run which is why she wanted to emphasize the gravity of the death there even to the point where she imagines billy's ghost yeah yeah like that was that was that whole sequence and maybe it was just that he was the mo- uh, the, the height like one of 
highest profile deaths that like Gwen had had some kind of history with, and that's why Shonen chose to emphasize it that way. But it does feel like that was off the back of the web warrior's friendship there, and the fact that he recruited her and stuff. So there is a history there, and uh, and we see we're seeing it being built in these comics, really putting them in the same team and stuff. But um, anyway, we yeah, you did mention earlier that we did get plenty of a lot of other spiders. So many, there's so so many in this, and there's some really fun fun ones in it. I like um, like we got Anya, we got Noir, we got Ben Riley Earth ninety four. Yeah, I thought it was cool how we had like classics and stuff. They had the full roster and brought back all of the sort of people who've carried spider adjacent titles that maybe could do with maybe more frequent appearances. Like I'm reading some of these and I'm thinking we haven't seen a lot of some of these for, for a while. I'd be interested to see what's going on there. And then we even got, you know, the animated Spideys. You know, there is Spider-Man 67 and the ultimate cartoon is actually labeled Earth 12041. So we got the Pete from the ultimate Spider-Man cartoon. You know, you could tell that that was him because of his cutaway scenes. Yeah, they, they really brought in like the like I remember reading this and going, oh, that's ultimate cartoon Spidey because the way they draw him, the way they have those, weird, you know, like the, the cutaway stuff that... But yeah, it was um, it was strange to see that Spider-Man here done so just yeah, like plus you know the Ultimate Cartoon had their own take of Spider-Verse. They did as well, yeah. I I find it interesting when they when they bring these characters in that then they don't reference what happened here and other stuff. But yeah, they have a good. I think they have a good like the A plot to that um Spider Team up thing. I think is quite fun. I enjoyed that. So yeah, um, yeah. I guess we'll never see that version of Peter Parker again. But I mean, I I don't think any love lost there. He had a pretty comprehensive television show, to be fair. Yeah, but when they did visit Earth sixty seven, I loved how everything was so tacky because it was the sixties. Yeah, I like that. I like it when they they change up the art and they 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 sort of try and emphasize the the sort of jarring nature of it all. It's it's great. Like, even that pointing scene where 67 and 12041 were like, uh, why do you look like that? Yeah, it's uh, it's funny that, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's good. I really like, I really like those moments. What other spiders could we talk about that? Um, is it worth to mention Ezekiel? Yeah, it was a really interesting one. The old man spider look, for one, really cool. Like, there's so much fan art of that with regular Spider-Man, like Tobey Maguire and that live action stuff, because that's sort of a, such an eye-catching design, but also, like, the idea of Ezekiel Sims becoming a Spider-Man because Morland did eventually kill Pete is quite interesting. I think it's, um, yeah, like... Um, the fact that he was sort of sitting on all that information and didn't really share it up until his death seems a bit silly. I think it's just because, you know, one piece of dialogue is that, like, Ezekiel has his reasons for doing what he does. Yeah, that's a pretty classic thing of him to do, to be fair. He does a lot of stuff, right, along similar veins. We also got 2099 here. Yeah, 2099. Honestly, I want to read more 2099 comics. I don't think I've read Many. I think I read Venom 2099 one time. The Jody Hauser one, right? The really recent one. That was fun. But yeah, like like to read a proper Spider-Man 2099 comic, I think I'd, en- I'd enjoy that. There was, um, is it an ongoing at the same time as this that tied in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I could, maybe I could do with reading that. But yeah, he's, uh, he's not had a lot of play recently either. No, because 
uh, his most recent appearances in the Nick Spencer run during the 2099 arc. And I think he's just stuck on 616. Oh, so he is still on 616 then? I think so. And he's in Spencer's Spider-Man? Yep. Okay, alright. I guess I'll read that at some point. But yeah, it just sort of... Yeah, it's interesting seeing this and looking at which characters Marvel has dropped in the sort of seven years that have passed since this event was formulated. Like, they probably think that, I don't know, too many spiders, let's get rid of some. It's just like, in, remember their whole um, beef with too many symbiotes and then they realized, oh, there's never too many symbiotes. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't think there, there can be too many symbiotes. I think there's just so much good stuff to explore with that. One funny thing, there's even a spider monkey in this. You know, honestly, one of my most tragic death moments reading this, I, I read that death and I just felt terrible for that poor monkey, watching him ook to death as the inheritor ate him, just truly tragic. And then for him to despairingly say, like, it's humiliating that I ate a monkey. Yeah, it's quite funny actually. And I think that's just a pun, a spider monkey. Yeah, like, I mean, spider monkeys are um, they're a real thing, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So there's also the, the Inheritors in this, which, uh, like we said, is um, like a spinoff from Morlin. And yeah, I, I think they're really fun villains. I like that there are, like, the whole primal aspect to their existence, that they are just constantly hungering, um, I think is really fun. And the fact that they need the spider's life force to keep themselves alive? Or is that just because they're being sadistic? Um, I think it's specifically related to this idea of, I don't know, sentient life forms that are like sort of symbol of, of a particular creature. And like the main one has been spiders. I think that's the logic of it. But either way, the super hungry for spider people. That's basically what it crumbles down to. So we have a lot of, yeah, I don't know. Like this, It's interesting that they sort of have to balance their primal desire to eat with like just trying to be normal functioning people. I think Khan's the most interesting example of that. We don't get a lot in the reading stuff from today. Hoping we get more later on. We definitely do in the Web Warriors stuff where he's an inheritor who's kind of more reluctant about it. He's not super keen on the whole killing everybody thing. And that's why he's shunned from the family. Right, exactly. And how he balances that with the fact that he does need to do that to like have vitality and have strength and, and not die, I think is very, very interesting. And then, you know, you also got, well, we mentioned Verna before, how she strikes up beef with Miles and Gwen. Yeah, Verna's got beef with the younger people there, I guess. Um, but she has her hounds. They're just basically lobotomized, brainwashed versions of Spidey's rogues. Yeah, that's really it really creeps me out. Like, what's going on there? You know, did where did she get them? What what are they thinking? Uh, what's that process like? It's just yeah, it creeps me out. And then I also found it interesting that with the inheritors, they're quote unquote employees in Loom World. They're some of Spidey's supporting cast. Yeah, I found that funny. Um, like Jessica Drew being like I don't know, like it's uh yeah, the, the, where the where they all show up at different sort of points, but like. They would know these people from their travels in the multiverse, but then also they have to go back home to them. I, I don't know. I, I wonder how they deal with that psychologically speaking. Like, I think in the epilogue, I think because one of them is Robertson, I'm assuming that 
I'm not sure if it's Randy or Robbie. I, I'm thinking it's Robbie, but it was mentioned in passing that Verna tore off Dr. Connor's arm for not being fast enough to remove a splinter. And then an unmentioned scenario involving Flash. I have to wonder whether or not she saw the irony in tearing off Dr. Connor's arm and also whether or not he had the other one at the time, because that has a fairly significant impact on the severity there. But yeah, that's that was wild. I think it seems like they just get off on, you know, using Spidey's supporting cast and or rogues gallery for their own benefit. Yeah, I think if you're a supporting cast fan of Spidey comics, you're going to have a rough time here. Like being made an unwilling employee. Yeah, right. I'm just wondering, like, how do they get paid? Because they don't have money. No, there's that. There's, uh, I mean, maybe maybe they have some kind of wealth guarantee. Does that make sense? Like, because obviously Jessica Drew's living it up when she's not working. Yeah, isn't it because like I think Saren mentioned it before when she was on the show with Ray that she was cozying it up with Morlin. Oh, oh. I'm probably thinking it's probably because it's a survival thing, but like if she was just cozying it up with him just for, yeah, that's kind of icky. Yeah, it's icky. Again, I think it's another one of those sort of sort of moments that sort of comes along in this sort of event which is a shame but essentially um like these employees they're technically like not slaves they're getting paid like in ragnarok what was the term used for um grandmaster slaves and he said he didn't like that term and then topaz said what the slaves of jobs but indentured i don't know forced volunteers something i don't know something to that effect right or interns of jobs or something interns who can't leave i don't know i can't remember it exactly but anyway, you know, they're still getting paid and, you know, they're not dead, like, yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I imagine things got a bit wild. Um, actually, I think we might get into it on Loom World after the inheritors aren't there anymore. So, yeah, I guess we'll see how that works out. And then the shocking thing is that, like, death doesn't really matter to them as long as they got a hold of their cloning technology. Yeah, I thought it was a neat twist. I thought that made it really interesting where you have these moments where it feels really satisfying where they've beaten the inheritors and then they find out that they can just clone themselves. And it's that sort of crushing moment where you realize that even if you stop the unstoppable force, they can just respawn. So I, I like the way that they set the stakes with that. It's kind of like, even though it's not really the same exact thing, you know, just like when Kang, who remains, was killed by Sylvie, he, like he just said, it's not going to change the fact that, you know, she just opened up the multiverse to his variants. His death didn't really matter. I mean, I like to think it did, but but also like. But no, for her in her for her in terms of getting closure. I guess we'll see. I don't know if like like sometimes they like to do the the vengeance death thing and then like it not work out for that person you know anyway with the inheritors it's like oh you killed me i'll be back in a few minutes yeah absolutely it's like that yeah one of those um we'll get into sort of what happens with that i guess uh next week yeah 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 um was there were we doing final opinions because we can't really sum this whole thing up unless if it's a whole because i think it's more beneficial that way Okay, so let's uh, let's wait for next week to do final opinions on Spider-Verse. It's been really good this week. I'm very excited to finish off this event. We're going to do the part two of our Spider-Verse read-through. Next week, we're doing Amazing Spider-Man, numbers 12 to 15. Spider-Woman, number three to four, right? 
Yeah, we're only skipping number two just because Gwen isn't a major player. She doesn't even show up in it. Okay, yeah. So we're, what we're doing is we're continuing on from the runs that we've read this week. Um, we're going to put the links to those in the description, where to buy and where to read. Uh, the reading list on the bit about Spider-Verse covers more stuff, but it does include what we're reading here. But yeah, just uh, Amazing Spider-Man 12 to 15, Spider-Woman 3 to 4. Please um, read these issues and send in your thoughts on what you think about the Spider-Verse event, uh, maybe as a whole. And that's on at GS Groupies on Twitter. Um, our email address is ghostspidergroupies at gmail.com. We also have a coffee page now if you would like to donate to pay for our expenses for running the podcast. And yeah, it's been a really lovely episode. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Abigail. I'm Pax. And I've been Abigail. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.